Welcome to the I Have ADHD podcast, where it's all about education, encouragement, and coaching for adults with ADHD. I'm your host, Kristen Carter, and I have ADHD. Let's chat about the frustrations, humor, and challenges of adulting, relationships, working, and achieving with this neurodevelopmental disorder. I'll help you understand your unique brain, unlock your potential, and move from point A to point B. Hey, what's up? This is Kristen Carter, and you're listening to the I Have ADHD podcast, episode number 201. I am medicated, I am caffeinated, and I am ready to roll. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for pressing play on this episode today. It truly has the potential to change your life. Today, I have on not one, but two distinguished psychotherapists, Katie McKenna and Helen Villers, here to discuss emotional abuse. And so the first thing that I need to do is let you know that this will be a heavy episode, and I truly encourage you to take care of yourself, my friend. Major content warning here, but please know that everything discussed is for your benefit. My ADHD listener, it's for you to be able to identify toxic relationships and patterns in relationships in your life and perhaps wake up to the fact that you might not be the problem. Now that's the tendency that we have as adults with ADHD. It's to believe that we are always the problem. And as we begin to learn about ADHD and make peace with it and ourselves, we may start to realize, hmm, maybe I'm not the problem. The healthier I personally become, the more I realize how toxic the relationships around me were. And please understand that I had so many unhealthy relationships that I was in literally in every single area of my life. And once I started to become more aware of what it means to be healthy, and I started to get healthy myself, I began to identify toxic and even abusive patterns in several of the relationships that I had. Now, of course, the definition of a toxic relationship is subjective, but Helen and Katie are experts in this area, and they are here to help us have a deeper understanding of abuse and what to look out for in our relationships. I truly cannot wait for you to hear from them, so let me tell you a little bit about each of them. After qualifying as a psychotherapist, Helen Villers completed a master's dissertation in working therapeutically with adult children of narcissistic parents. Her client base is largely adult children of narcissistic parents or survivors of narcissistic partnerships. Helen is unique in the field because there is very little academic research in this area, and books thus far are usually based on anecdotal or personal experience. Helen is also a couples therapist with a busy private practice. And fun fact, Helen has ADHD and she's totally one of us. Katie McKenna is an accredited psychotherapist who runs a successful private psychotherapy practice. At 37, with over a decade of clinical experience, Katie works out of a GP practice and currently has a waiting list of over 500 people. What Katie finds most rewarding is raising people's awareness and educating them on how their childhood relationships are impacting their current relationships and to not only witness but play a role in someone's life changing exponentially through the psychotherapy process. 
Both Helen and Katie are on TikTok and Instagram, and of course, we'll link their handles in the show notes. But before we transition to our conversation, I have to put in a huge plug for their podcast, which I almost never do. Their podcast is called Insight, Exposing Narcissism. The content in this podcast is hugely valuable, and I can't say enough good things about it. If you are someone who suspects that you be in one or more narcissistic relationships, I highly, highly, highly recommend their podcast. Again, it's called Insight Exposing Narcissism. And of course, we'll link that in the show notes too. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Katie McKenna and Helen Villers. All right, Helen and Katie, thank you so much for being here with me today. I am beyond thrilled to have you. Well, thank Thanks you for having us. us. Yeah, really excited. Mm. It is so fun. So I have been listening to your podcast for about six months, been through every episode, have a couple <laughs> of them starred, flagged. I go back to them often. Why don't you just tell us just a tiny bit about your podcast so the listener can kind of get a feel for what it is that you guys talk about? Yeah, sure thing. Our podcast is basically, we answer letters from listeners. Listeners write us in a letter about their situation. They describe what's going on with their family or their partner, and they talk a bit about their childhood. And then we pick it apart and look at where narcissism is there and where emotional abuse is happening and patterns, and then offer some ideas of what they could do differently and how they might be able to change their behavior to protect themselves better. Mm. Anything you want to add to that, Katie? Is that... Yeah, really when we think of like old school agony ants on radio for somebody is writing in, but it's really condensed. So this way people actually get to give their experience. And the wonderful thing about hearing it in their own language is that we get to then talk back to them in normal everyday language. Mm -hmm. So it really removes the therapeutic speak. And it's actually talking about real life and real life situations, because a lot of people, when they grow up, Helen mentioned they're in abusive households in narcissistic Mm -hmm. households. They just think that this is normal and it's normalized and they can often go on and repeat the behavior. So we are just thrilled to be able to have the podcast that we do and to be able to get this information out to as many people as we can. Because although we see individual clients, it's really wonderful to be able to make this information as accessible to everybody as possible. Yeah, the the thought of so many people being able to listen in Mm -hmm. and be able to relate to perhaps what a a listener has written into you and then hearing the way that you pick apart everything. And it's almost like you guys can sniff out emotional abuse and toxic behavior. it's like it's like a dog with a scent, you know? Yes. Like you guys can Ooh. snip it out so well and things that I would have never pinpointed previously as being abusive or manipulative or toxic mm. behavior when you identify it from the letter and talk about it, it's been really really helpful for me and my own learning. It's um it's a really amazing thing, but it's also a really tricky thing because we see it all the time, don't we, Casey? We like yeah. You've, it's like this, like you said, it's the sixth sense that you can just you can just feel it's there and notice it, and yeah, it's it's a blessing and a curse, I think, actually, because <laughs> <I bet. laughs> it sets also- the standard really high for relationships. Yeah. yeah. What's also amazing, and we hear it from a lot of our own clients and from the listeners, that once people see it, 
they will see it. It's like learning and understanding. And we often hear this from our listeners and our clients going, God, now that I see it, I see it everywhere. And yeah. it is this learning that, and the more that we have this understanding of what emotional abuse is, what gaslighting is, like mm-hmm. you said, what manipulation is, what toxic behaviors are like, the more that we can see it and the more that we understand it, the more that we recognize it and the more that we can validate ourselves that actually, mm-hmm. wow, maybe it's not me that's the problem. You know, maybe mm-hmm. the way you are treating me, maybe I'm not actually being heard in this relationship. A lot of times I hear from my clients that, oh, how can I explain this better so they'll understand? I'm not really that articulate. How can I put this in a way so that they can understand my perspective? And there is a point we have to look at that and take accountability. Mm -hmm. But then there comes a point that we have to look at, well, what if you're not being heard in this scenario? What if somebody is gaslighting you and keeps deflecting and keeps Mm -hmm. undermining you and gaslighting you and that you're actually not being heard here? And one of our first episodes, The Sound of Silence, was about that, a woman in a relationship with her husband. And she wasn't being heard in the relationship and there was no room for her voice. That episode was called The Sound of Silence. So that is such a beautiful starting point because I would love to talk about that phrase of what if you're not the problem? Yeah. As an adult with ADHD, and I'm speaking for myself, but also for, you know, the thousands of ADHDers that I've worked with and, you know, tens of thousands of listeners on this podcast. What I hear over and over is that we know that we are hard to live with. We know that we show up in a chaotic way. We know that we can be emotionally explosive. We know that our executive function sucks. And so we have been pegged as mm-hmm. the problem since childhood. We, yeah. we know we're a problem. And what I see now after having been in therapy for a couple of years and working so closely with clients is that so many of us adults with ADHD are in relationships that maybe are a little bit abusive, maybe are a little bit toxic, maybe are a little bit emotionally manipulative, but we don't even realize it because we are so used to being blamed and taking blame for being a problem because we know we're hard to live with. So can you speak to that a little bit? I'd love to answer that a bit. So I'm ADHD as well. And people often ask me, well, what's the difference between ADHD and trauma? Because they look really similar and they do look really similar. But what I always say is there will always be ADHD and trauma together. You always have to pull the trauma out of ADHD before we start really understanding what is ADHD and what's trauma. Because as we heal our trauma, the ADHD integrates more. As we start, you know, allowing ourselves to exist as we were meant to be, where we were punished for not being neurotypical, when, you know, our symptoms tend to get worse and people are like, what's going on? I used to be able to read a book for days and days and now I can't even read a sentence without losing track. And it's like, well, yeah, because we're letting you be as as you are. We're not punishing you for not being neurotypical. And so you're not masking basically anymore. ADHD people are more susceptible to emotional abuse because of that, because of that trauma background where they've been told, well, yeah, but it's your fault I'm behaving this way towards you. It's your fault I'm treating you this way. And I struggle sometimes with the idea, and even as someone who's ADHD, that people with ADHD or autism are more likely to end up in emotional abuse. They wouldn't if they had had a healthy upbringing. 
right? They wouldn't if they had been raised in an accepting way where their conditions of worth weren't based on them being and appearing neurotypical. When we start unpicking those narratives, when we start taking away the you should be's and who are you instead, put in who are you instead, we can actually start building really healthy boundaries and start saying, yeah, all right, I am chaotic, but why are you expecting me to be different than I was when you met me? Why are you expecting me to suddenly change everything? Because your expectation is I should be like this. I'm not Mm. like this. I never have been like this. And I'm not going to apologize for it. So it's about standing in the confidence of our diagnoses and teaching people to do that so that they can own who they are and not apologize for who they are and not accept punishment for who they are. I just feel like we need to insert some applause there. Like (laughs) cheering. (laughs) Yes. 100%. Oh my goodness. Yes. And that is what I think is so important about developing self-acceptance around the Mm -hmm. diagnosis is that once you begin to accept your diagnosis, what it means, and really take responsibility for it, of course, like make sure you're being treated, make sure you have support, make sure you're building your scaffolding, all Mm -hmm. of that. But once you really accept who you are, then you look to others and say, well, I accept me. Why aren't you accepting me? Mm. I'm not the problem. You are because you're the one demanding me to be something different than I am. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, like, who's the problem in that situation? Mm -hmm. Right? It's beautiful. You know, and also that idea of, executive function you mentioned and it's something that Mm -hmm. ADHD obviously struggle with neurodivergence Mm -hmm. struggle with loads and neurotypicals expect us to suddenly fix it or like grow out of being like bad at executive function and it's like why why do you think that I'm going to be different than I've been all my life I'm never going to get on top of the washing because it just isn't important to me (laughs) like you know I'll do it last minute.com because that's how I work best and that's a totally acceptable way of being it's fine yes so good. So I'm curious, Katie, how can you just give us, um, I'm really putting you on the spot here. So if you're like, no, I can't, that's fine. <laughs> but I'm curious if you have kind of like a working definition of abuse. When when we talk about abuse, I think most people go to physical abuse. Mm-hmm you know, big T trauma Mm -hmm. is what I like to call it. Like those big events, those big Mm -hmm. abusive events where there's maybe some domestic violence or whatever the case may be. Is there um, a definition of of abuse that you like that maybe encompasses more than just physical abuse? Well, emotional abuse is so insidious that a lot of people don't know when they're in it. And if we look at that physical and sexual abuse, you're right, a lot of people think that that is the only type of abuse. But Helen gave a lovely example on the podcast about that if you were in you know, if you were in a restaurant and somebody come in and they hit you because the whole restaurant would be shocked and you would be too, and you would get attention and everybody would say, this is wrong. What's after happening? You're quite likely that you might go and report that. But If you're in a relationship with somebody for, you know, and this is the 20th date and now they push you or now they are physical with you and you have this history where you have been undermined and abused all your life, you might go quick to self-blame and say, well, maybe this is my fault. What did I do? Mm -hmm. Especially if they're the one that is saying that to you. So physical and sexual abuse, the cornerstone of all abuse is emotional abuse. And if anybody is in a relationship that there is physical or sexual abuse, emotional abuse has to take place. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
I need you to repeat that. That was mm-hmm. mind blowing for me. The cornerstone of all abuse is emotional abuse. Can you say more words about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to what you said there at the beginning when you were saying that growing up in an environment that a lot of people with ADHD find it very difficult to live with. And if we're talking about emotional abuse from the narcissistic parent and whether the child has ADHD or not, you will have to fit into a vision of what they want for you, an expectation, a role. And when you deviate from that, so when you express any autonomy, any preference, or let's say with ADHD, maybe that it's to stim or to fidget, you will be told to sit still and you will be shamed that there's something wrong with you. Whereas there you were talking about that it's really hard to possibly be in a relationship with somebody with ADHD as a neurotypical mm-hmm. <laughs> and with somebody like with healthy communication and there with me in a relationship, you know, a professional and, and, and with a professional and friendship, you know, relationship yeah. with Helen. Once we're very clear with our communication, it's absolutely not difficult at all to sit in mm-hmm. a space to love her and have compassion with her and want to be with her. But Helen is very good at taking her own accountability. So I remember before sending her a GIF and it was about somebody's expression and she went, what does this mean? I'm not getting the nuance in that. And I was like, oh, okay. And it was, I think it was some, it wasn't somebody rolling their eyes. I can't remember. And so I just noted that and I went, okay, because me and Helen love uh, sharing gifts with each other. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll lay off the facial expressions one and I'll, you know, give a different example. So that's very easy for me to accept when she's able to communicate that with me. But I understand that if somebody doesn't have understanding and is blamed at that and that they can be quite frustrated and this is what you're talking about, maybe have a big emotion because I'm feeling stupid or I'm feeling left out or I'm feeling less than. Whereas Helen was able to own that and say, actually, what does that mean? And then the person that... (laughs) Yeah, but the person that is accepting and understanding and not shaming says, absolutely, that's no problem. And that's a really important point because... I know I can say that to Katie because I know Katie's not going to judge me for it and she's not going to shame me and be like, why don't you understand that? She's just going to go, oh yeah, no, it means this. And just that's it. There's no big deal made out of it. Whereas when I was younger, if I didn't understand and I asked for that clarification, it'd be like, what's wrong with you? And again, there you go. There's the narrative of you're the one that's wrong. You're the problem because you don't understand the nuance of the neurotypical. And yeah. It's a really, it's a really interesting thing when you're in safe relationships, when you're in a place where you are accepted as you present, you are able to own your parts that other people might have shamed you for. And yeah. Helen, I remember before actually you sharing with me that you really struggled with the noise of somebody eating and it's called misophonia. And I remember saying, yeah, that's no problem. And I just muted myself when we'd be on Zoom. And I remember you being shocked at that. Do you want to share a bit about that? Yeah, because, right. So... I've struggled with misophonia for since I was probably about 12 and just the noise of someone eating is horrific to me. It's awful. And I'm, do you know what? I don't know why I'm telling you guys because you all know this because you're ADHD. I don't know why I'm explaining it. You all know what I'm talking about. But Katie was just, it was just this really amazing moment where I was just like, oh, you're doing that. You're not forcing me to accept something that I really struggle with you're not forcing me to face it you're you're just saying well I can accommodate you in this way and it's really really simple because it's clicking mute that's all she has to do she just has to click mute right and you hadn't even asked me to do that and I don't 
And here's the thing. I don't really have to understand what that is. You know, I'm neurotypical, so I don't have to understand to understand that you're having a difficulty with something. And actually, I don't want you to struggle. So if I can just mute myself, right, you're not asking me not to eat. All I have to do is press mute. And I remember saying to you, because then when I was going over to you in England and I was saying, how are you in a restaurant? And you were saying, no, there's enough background noise. Like, that's absolutely okay. It's just when we're in close proximity. (laughs) And there's, but that's easy. So this kind of narrative that the ADHD or is the problem. No, a lot of the times it's the neurotypical that is demanding that the neurodivergent fits their box and is affronted in some way that this is unacceptable. They take it personally that Mm. you're hearing, you know, that you're hearing these loud noises. Whereas, okay, I will, I will try to accommodate that. Mm. Can we give Katie a a neurodivergent gold medal or something? Because that was amazing. (laughs) You deserve a trophy. Can you please? And we shouldn't. So sorry. We, we oh. shouldn't. I, I get it. Right. But you are applauding the bare minimum there, which is actually showing up when you asked, you know, what is abusive behavior? You are showing up when people are actually being so neglectful of your needs. I, I, I appreciate that, but I don't deserve a, a gold medal. This is this is the basics. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. I know. Uh, <laughs> she is such a gem. You're so I mean, lucky to have I'm her. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. Imagine working with someone who just accommodates you oh, in that way, where it's and it's beautiful. not a chore, and they don't remind you of it. And that right. you know, you asked Katie about emotional uh, definition of abuse, and it's mm-hmm. essentially people who punish you for a reaction to their behaviour, right, or mm-hmm. ask you to be a different version of yourself to suit their experiences. People who deny your emotions, who refuse to engage with you who refuse to allow you to be an individual as you are, really. Can you say a few words about what neglect looks like in an adult relationship? Because I think so many ADHDers are feeling neglected and yeah. not even realizing it. In relationships where their their needs are not being met, where they're not being validated, where they're not being heard, and that really is neglect, isn't it? So can you yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Well, let's just take what Katie just said there about muting herself. That mm-hmm. is attuning and attentive, and the opposite of not doing that would be neglectful. To mm-hmm. not meet my need, to not accommodate a need that's very simple. It's not because it's not costing her a lot to do that, right? And right. this is the thing, right? So I can express a preference, and Katie can choose whether or not to meet that. She doesn't have to do the muting, but then I get to choose whether I stay on the call or not. So I can remove myself if I want to, right? But when we're talking about neglect, it's a complete denial of needs and ignoring of needs. It's not even denial. It's just like they're irrelevant to me. I'm not going to pay attention to them. And you just have to just suck it up and get on with it. And with ADHD, I think because there can be big emotional landscapes and different things, especially because there's always that trauma. So emotional dysregulation is going to, I sometimes wonder how much emotional dysregulation is a part of ADHD. Mm -hmm. I genuinely think it's probably more trauma than it is ADHD. And I think the same for RSD, which I know might be a bit controversial, that like but RSD is actually trauma based I don't think yes. it's ADHD based and I yes. and I'm talking from personal experience a lot yeah. but my experience is that um and my client experience is that as we heal the trauma rejection is something that people are made so much more comfortable with mm-hmm. so neglect is where somebody is so misattuned to where they are ignored where all their needs are ignored and it's just yeah ignoring 
and mm. not accommodating in any way, shape or form. And now a word from our sponsor. Hey, Kristen here. I'm the host of this podcast, an ADHD expert and a certified life coach who's helped hundreds of adults with ADHD understand their unique brains and make real changes in their lives. If you're not sure what a life coach is, let me tell you. A life coach is someone who helps you achieve your goals like a personal trainer for your life. A life coach is a guide who holds your hand along the way as you take baby step after baby step to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. A good life coach is a trained expert who knows how to look at situations, all situations, with non-judgmental neutrality and offer you solutions that you've probably never even considered before. If you're being treated for your ADHD, and maybe even you've done some work in therapy, and you want to add to your scaffolding of support, you've got to join my group coaching program, Focused. Focused is where functional adults with ADHD surround each other with encouragement and support. And I lead the way with innovative and creative solutions to help you fully accept yourself, understand your ADHD, and create the life that you've always wanted to create, even with ADHD. Go to IHaveADHD.com slash focused to join. And I hope to see you in our community today. Following on with that example, right? So let's say a neglect would be just that, me ignoring, me not caring that she's struggling or having difficulty. And I'm just kind of shrugging it off going whatever. And I'm not even listening. I'm not mm -hmm. asking how's that impacting you or what I can do. Mm -hmm. And so that neglect is abusive. But then if yeah. we go on, what the behavior, what we typically see then is more abusive than the gaslighting. And just trigger warning here for anybody, because um, I'm going to do an example of what gaslighting might sound like. And it's like, oh, what are you talking about? Jesus, you're so dramatic. Oh, you're always overreacting. Oh, it's all about you. Oh, yeah. And um, there's always a problem. You know, you're always moaning. You're always complaining. And so that's silencing somebody. So if that happens, then the person there learns that I can't express my needs to you. It's not safe. So the next time they become more silent, they mm -hmm. squish their wants and needs because it's not a safe space to articulate them. They're shamed mm -hmm. for it. They're shunned for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I will dare to say that many of us adults with ADHD grew up in families, just as you described, mm -hmm. Katie, where our needs were overlooked. And when we tried to express those needs, we were gaslit, told we were too much, told that we were too demanding, told that, you know, that's a stupid request or that's not even something that's necessary. And so my experience in working with so many clients is that this is the way that they grew up. And then in adult relationships, they have no idea how to express needs because they are constantly feel unsafe in all of their relationships. They, they feel like they have to mask. They feel like they have to accommodate. They feel like they have to be appeasing in order to be accepted. I have to appease you so that you will accept me. And if I don't, then I, I will miss out on love and care and my needs being met. So the way that I get those needs met is I people please, I accommodate, I pretend I'm someone that I'm not. I I gaslight myself mm -hmm. into thinking that I'm the problem. Yeah. People pleasers are going to end up in toxic relationships. Whether they're mm -hmm. ADHD or not, they're going to do it because, or they're going to end up in those situations because they're not expressing needs and they're avoiding rejection at all costs. And of course, then mm -hmm. let's throw in ADHD on top of that, where right. you're punished constantly for expressing a need. 
that you're you know you're double people pleasing because you're so scared of rejection and then you're never expressing a need and then maybe it explodes out of you and then you're called um, dramatic and then you get gaslit that way and oh it's just yeah it's really difficult really really Mm. difficult it is and let's take it in terms of the child actually discovering who they are you know that's the child discovering what their wants are what their preferences are and sometimes I might like this and other days I mightn't like this and some days I want to venture out and other days I might want to sit in think of in terms of an adulthood you know sometimes I want to vent sometimes I want silence sometimes I want space so it's ever-changing whereas when we're talking about in these emotional abusive relationships in childhood with parents and narcissistic parents again it's that the child has to conform so it's that the child does doesn't get to explore who they are. And a lot of my clients come in and they're genuinely saying to me, I don't know who I am. And Mm. when I'm asked my opinion, it's like, oh, no, what do you think? Or if I'm asked what restaurant I go to, oh, well, what one do you want to go to? And it's when we look back at this, that they were never given that time or that opportunity. You know, it's even clicking the fingers, telling them to hurry up, you know, don't Mm. don't be daydreaming, don't be dilly dallying. And instead of giving the child time to decide. So a lot of the time in work, it's actually to Again, to teach people how they were denied their autonomy, how their no was actually overlooked. Because when a child is born, they know to cry out when they Mm. need changing, when they need food, when they need comfort. The first word out of a child's mouth is no. But even before that, you know, if they don't want food, they close their mouth or they shake their head. So the child is fully able to express themselves. But then their no is annihilated. Their apprehension is shushed. They're told to not trust their gut and trust what they want. And they're told that I, the parent, know better. And they're told that I'm actually doing this because I love you. So I'm giving out to you so that you'll be accepted. Mm. And then you learn that, well, the only way to be loved is actually to present this version of myself. I'll only be loved if I present one way. And we learn that we are only loved and we are only tolerated if Mm. we are the way you want me to be. And then Mm. we can see how we're more likely to get into these abusive relationships, how we're more likely Mm. to be exploited and be taken advantage of and confirm that narrative that, oh, well, maybe it must be me because now if I'm surrounded by everybody telling me it must be me, it's really hard then to get a grasp of this because the whole point of gaslighting is actually to deny somebody's reality Mm. and to make them doubt their memories and perception. And often they can feel like they're going crazy. Yes. I just wanted to bring up, I think it was on your last podcast, one of you, I think it was your daughter, Katie, who uh, put tomato sauce on her pancakes. Oh no, that's me. My daughter puts tomato sauce on apple pie because she loves apple pie. And so she's suspected ADHD and possibly autistic as well. And mm. oh my God, she's so funny. So she, it's really interesting actually talking about this is like adults with ADHD who grew up in the like 80s, 90s and where there wasn't a lot of tolerance around neurodivergence, etc. And now looking at my child who is fully accepted and not expected to be neurotypical, a very neurodivergent household and it's absolutely like friendly to that and everyone meets their needs and asks for their needs to be met. And I watch her doing this, yeah, with with the tomato sauce and the apple pie and why shouldn't she? Oh, I love that. Why shouldn't she? And from that, it was actually then I was saying my daughter the previous day had asked for jam and ham together on her brown bread sandwich. Jam and ham. (laughs) And I dismissed it. I didn't shame her for it, but I went, oh no, which do you want? And then she picked one. And it was from Helen Mm -hmm. sharing that. And it was me going, 
oh, actually, like there's nothing wrong with that. I should actually let her have it and see if she likes it. And this is the bit where we don't have to be perfect parents. We can make mistakes. But when it's shown to us, are we willing to accept that? Yeah, Yeah. I was wrong doing that. I should have at least let her taste it to see if she liked it first. And Mm. now that I know this, am I willing to accommodate this and allow her for it? But the main thing is, is that I didn't shame her for that and say, Mm. that's disgusting or you're bad or you're wrong. But I did deny it to her in that moment. Mm-hmm. I want it's to know what Kristen small... was going to ask though about the tomato sauce on apple pie what were you going yeah, to yeah. say well I was just going to say it's such a small tiny tiny example of letting yeah. your child be autonomous yeah. and to think that so many of us were denied that just yeah. the, our small preferences the easy preferences that really don't even matter yeah. were denied It. what happens now is we have a generation of ADHD adults who don't like you said, don't know what they want, don't know what they like, don't feel comfortable really expressing themselves and have denied their their inner voice, have denied their gut feeling, their Mm -hmm. responses have been groomed to deny how they feel. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask someone with ADHD, how does that make you feel? I mean, it's usually like, I don't know, you know, naming emotions is so difficult. So I I just thought it was such a beautiful but tiny example of letting someone be an autonomous person. And I think this is a really good segue into a discussion about narcissism. Okay. Because I know that is something that you talk about on your podcast often. Mm -hmm. So either one of you, I'm curious, um, in a narcissistic relationship, denial of autonomy is a big thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So basically what happens with the narcissist is that When they meet somebody or when they have a child, they decide who that person is going to be. They decide a whole character for them, a whole personality, and they put them on this pedestal and they expect them to live up to that undefined image that they've not actually explained what they're expecting at all. And they say, here you are, you're on this pedestal, you're going to be the best thing that's ever happened to me, you're going to fix all my problems, you're going to make me feel amazing. And then that person tries to express autonomy and moves away from this projected image of themselves that the narcissist has decided they're going to be. They express the autonomy and then they get punished for it. And Mm. so very quickly, especially when it's the child, the child learns only this version is acceptable of me. And it becomes a narrower and narrower road that they are allowed to walk down as themselves. And that all the parts of them that actually make them them. So all the bits about liking apple pie and tomato sauce are punished and they are shamed and they are excluded. And then the the person becomes absolutely disconnected from those parts mm. of themselves. And so when you talk about people, ADHD people coming into therapy, not knowing their feelings, we see that a lot, obviously, with our client group, whether they're ADHD or not, because they've been denied all that autonomy. And one of the ways I work as a therapist is very structured in terms of if I was a child in that situation, this is how it might make me feel sad, angry, powerless, ex- hopeless, etc. And I sort of almost spoon feed the options of these are the different emotions that you might be able to connect with. And if mm. that isn't OK, we just go nice or nasty. It's literally good or bad. And I just separate it into two fields and then we bury it down into those to try and help identify those feelings because Mm -hmm. that denial of autonomy means a disconnection from self. And the narcissist is so very, very good at doing it because the punishment for not living up to their projected image is so vile and so painful, whether a child or an adult, that it's absolutely 
everything is done to avoid it. And of mm-hmm. course, they pick people in adulthood who are people pleasers, who are scared of rejection, and yeah. they manipulate that to their own benefit mm-hmm. to no end, you know. Yeah. And when you're asking about that, if you want to hear the language that the clients actually bring to us, what they'd say is, oh, it's like walking on eggshells around my parent. You know, you have to be very mindful and, you know, because they're either going to blow up or they're going to get really sad and withdraw, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm going to have to mind their emotions. And Helen talks about the four different types of narcissistic parents, the critical parent where we hear nothing is ever good enough for them. You know, they're always criticizing me, undermining me, the engulfing Mm -hmm. parent that wants to know every aspect of my life, that there's no privacy and has absolute ownership over me. The ignoring parent, which is self-explanatory there, it's the one that has absolutely no interest and is very neglectful towards the Mm. child. And then one that encompasses all three. And a lot of people actually can identify their parent in the three of them. But a lot of the times there's one that is more uh, prominent. Mm -hmm. Mm. Sorry, I was just listening as a client, not (laughs) as (laughs) a I was just like, mm-hmm, tell me more. <laughs> so I was not preparing for my next question. So that's a beautiful segue into what makes a narcissist a narcissist? Oh, shall I take it, Casey? You happy? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay, so for just for context, I've got a master's. I did a master's in working therapeutically with adult children of narcissistic parents. And Part of that was looking into what creates a narcissist because it is the one question that every client asks me, why are they this way? Why are they this way? What made them be like this? And before I tell you the answer, I want to just preface it with, we can have compassion for the trauma, but we do not have to tolerate the behavior. So if you go with the kind of most popular theory, It is a very severe and significant attachment disorder, and it results from severe emotional, physical, sexual abuse, severe neglect, or severe smothering. And that's something that people leave out all the time, where the child has grown up with a parent who's really intrusive and really in their face. There's lots of covert sexual abuse. There's lots of, there's no privacy. It's really, you know, just like they're enmeshed to the, they're almost one person so badly that the narcissist doesn't get to develop, or the child, because it happens sort of in early childhood, doesn't get to develop a sense of self. And that means they have no identity. And so they use other people's identity to shore themselves up and to reassure them that they are good in the world. But because the need is so great, they exploit people and abuse people to continue telling them that they are good. And what I kind of offer to my clients is they're basically like three-year-olds with really bad boundaries. And, you know, with lots of tantrums. And Mm -hmm. when you start looking at them as childlike, it it really shows up where that behavior kind of stems from, Mm. you know. So basically it's trauma and abuse, which is sad, but it's also their responsibility to fix. It's not their fault, but it is their responsibility. Mm. When we look at that, that they are like the three-year-old, right? So they're having big tantrums, but now these are adult people. You know, there are adults in our lives having massive tantrums, whereas we can contain a three-year-old. But I remember on one of the podcasts using that idea, imagine a three-year-old with a doll, right? And sometimes it takes their fancy to play with that doll. And then other times when they don't want it, they'll just discard the doll, right? And that's acceptable for a three-year-old. Whereas when this is an adult that is using people kind of as their plaything to just meet their own needs 
parents and is never looking at the child or the person in their life to actually say, what about you in this scenario? You know, what needs do you have? And let's negotiate this and let's talk about this. They are the child that just wants things for themselves and will be very demanding. And when Helen's talking about that enmeshment between the parent and child, when the parent is very smothering, you know, we talk about parentification and two different types, emotional and instrumental and emotional and sorry, three, narcissistic then parentification, which encompasses the two. And emotional parentification is where the child is the parent's um, mini confidant, you know, where they're the therapist, where they're the, the go-between between the relationship, where the parent will confide so many secrets to the child and they will be the hold all for what's happening. Or the instrumental parentification, where, which is just, if we think of the Cinderella syndrome, where they will be the mother to their other siblings, where they will be cleaning and cooking and paying bills and looking after medical appointments, stuff that's really beyond developmentally age appropriate. Yeah. And when somebody is so enmeshed in that, when Helen's talking about where narcissism comes from, it's really hard because there's such enmeshment. And it's so important to just reiterate what Helen said. You can have compassion for the trauma that they went through. You can have understanding for what that was, but it doesn't excuse their behavior. Mm -hmm. It doesn't excuse their behavior. And it doesn't mean that you have to accept their behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here's the thing about three-year-olds. They can be very sweet and snuggly also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that is also true of narcissists. Yeah. They can be very sweet and snuggly. They can be very loving and, and giving when it works for them. And so mm -hmm. I think it's really hard to identify narcissistic relationships because they're not all bad. Okay. I'm going to challenge that slightly. Please mm -hmm. do. And just say... Yes, they can be sweet and snuggly, but it will be benefiting them. It will be motivational. Yes. They will be gaining something from that. So are they being really nice because they're trying to deflect you away from holding them accountable for something that you're trying to um, pull them up for? Are they feeling sorry for themselves because it means that you have to reassure and, and, and catch their emotions and solve their emotions for them? The, the narcissist, it's a really difficult subject, this one, because there's a lot of people who are kind of going, but it's a mental health disorder and isn't it ableist to kind of be really mean about them? And the, the difficulty with that is there is an awareness to what they're doing. They know what yeah. they're doing. If you ask someone to stop doing something, if you say to them, you did this thing, I don't like it, it hurts me, and they continue to do it, mm -hmm. they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yes, they can be sweet and snuggly, but it's for their own benefit. Helen, you did a TikTok that went viral and it was saying that if they know to hide it, they know yes. that it's wrong. Yeah. So let's think of the critical parent that is critical of you at home. Often that parent then to portray an image will be so proud of the of the child then in public and they will create this image that they're really loving and kind and they won't treat you the way they would at home. Whereas behind closed doors, it's a very different story. And mm. if we think of the narcissistic partner, if they're able to control their anger in public, if they're able again to smile and not react, they're able to control it and they know what they're doing is wrong because they know that it wouldn't be accepted or tolerated in the company mm -hmm. that they're in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's so important. So I'm curious if you think that neurodivergent people or specifically people with ADHD might be more susceptible to narcissistic relationships. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, like I said earlier, because we are raised being forced to deny our autonomy, we're mm. ripe for the picking for a narcissist. So mm. I, I do think we are more susceptible 
but because, not because of the ADHD, but because of the trauma that sits next to the ADHD. Right. Okay, that makes if you grow up so in, in an emotionally healthy environment, you're going to be able to say, no, I don't like that behavior or I, I, you're mm -hmm. going to sit in your autonomy. If you've not been punished for being neurodivergent, if you've not been forced to mask your whole life, mm -hmm. you're not going to think you are the problem all the time. And you're going to be able to hold those boundaries and say, I won't tolerate that. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, my my answer is simply because there is trauma that sits next to the neurodivergence that mm -hmm. makes us more susceptible to those relationships. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have to heal your trauma. Yes. Because <laughs> when you were saying there, it's difficult for ADHDers to connect to their emotions. Again, I just concur with Helen and it's because they haven't been allowed to express mm -hmm. them. And we see this when you're talking about people pleasing. You know, that's our fourth trauma response, freeze, mm -hmm. fight, flight, fawn. And again, why is somebody living in survival mode? Where are they walking on eggshells? Because Helen, you shared that your daughter um, has ADHD and she is well able to express what she's feeling. She's well oh. able to say, I don't want to do this. No, I don't. Yeah. I don't like to. I'd like to do this instead. So and again, that is because you allowed that space for her to express herself. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't yep. mean, by the way, that the parent has to meet the child's needs 100 percent of the time. Right. This is where the people pleasing parent can end up pleasing their child yeah. and be scared of conflict now with their child. And they can mm -hmm. end up repeating this pattern where the child can end up quite entitled. So there's nothing wrong with a child having a need and, you know, me being busy either working or making the dinner and saying, no, I want to hear that, but I'll, I'll come and get you, you know, in a half an hour. Hour. So right. we're saying, I see you, I hear you. Right now, I, I just can't facilitate that. Right, right now, right. I just can't fit that in. But I will come. I want to hear. So the bid for connection, they're still connecting to us, and it's okay for us to hold a boundary. It doesn't mean that we have to be subservient to our child. It's okay for us to hold boundaries. It's really healthy. I mm. want to just add on to what I said earlier about um, the trauma sitting alongside it. There is one aspect of ADHD neurodivergence that does make us more susceptible and that's not being able to predict people's motivation. And so sometimes that might make us more susceptible because we can't read subtext or, you know, but that also comes potentially back to trauma, which is, well, I'm doing it for your own benefits. So people mm -hmm. who are mean to me are doing it because they are trying to make me better. And so they're doing it because they love me because, you know, why wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. So is it that ADHD people can't predict motivation or is that coming from the trauma space where we're told that we're being punished for our own good and that right. people are mean to us for our own good and that they're making us feel bad for our own good, you know? Mm -hmm. Because we are fundamentally broken yeah. and we need to be fixed and oh. it is like cool. their job to play God and yeah. to fix us. Yeah. And force yeah. I described it as being bullied into being neurotypical most of my life. And the minute mm. I got the diagnosis, yeah. it was just like, oh, my God, it mm. wasn't me after all. You yeah. know, it was amazing, actually. It was a really transformative yeah. moment. I'm you so are glad. not broken. You are not hard to love. Yeah. Um, yeah and that is so wrong to be bullied into something yeah. other than who you are and what you are. Yeah, because then when you're able to express who you are, it's that then that leads to connection. It's that that leads to intimacy. It's that mm -hmm. it's that that leads, you know, it's that authenticity that yes. then we're able to connect to people and feel understood and feel seen. Yeah, mm -hmm. because the ADHD or neurodivergence are taught that we don't like the neurodivergent as part of you, aspect of you. We yeah. only like the neurotypical version of you. So present mm -hmm. that or you get excluded. And mm -hmm. that's the message. Even now, even my son who's autistic, he he experiences that at school as well, still now mm -hmm. to a degree, a lot better than it would have been in my age. But but yeah, it's still there. Mm -hmm. 
I just appreciate both of you so much. This has been so soothing to my soul. And I can just imagine how this will feel like a warm blanket on a cold day to my oh. listeners as well. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. If someone is listening and they're starting to get curious and they're thinking, wait a second, mm -hmm. that sounds like my family, or wait a second, that sounds like my partner. What, what do you suggest that their next step might be? I mean, I think probably join our Facebook group because mm. you can get access to all our other channels from there. So our Facebook group is called Insight Exposing Narcissism. And we're both on TikTok and we're both on Instagram and Facebook. So we're all over the place. You can't miss us. Really. <laughs> no, can't get away from us, really. But yeah, if you go to the Facebook group, that's probably the best place to start. Because then also you've got a big community of people who will help you as well. It's not mm. just us. It's it's a big, amazing resource, actually, that group, mm. isn't it, Katie? It is. And then you already mentioned the podcast Insight, where we're able to explore this and go into much more detail. So yeah, yeah. check that out. Yeah. yeah, it has just been such a joy to get to know you virtually and follow you both on Instagram because I don't do TikTok because I'm just like a 90 year old woman. Um, but I watch TikToks on Instagram yeah. like an like, adult. Do you like know what I'm saying? I do, yeah, like yeah. an adult. <laughs> I've heard that one. <laughs> but then to, to find you there and then to get to know you through the podcast and just the insight no pun intended, that you bring <laughs> just to all of the relationships that are discussed. It has been so transformative and helpful to me personally. So I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the work that you do. It has just really been transformative to me. And thank you for being here with me today. Thank you so well, much for having thanks us. Thanks very great. much. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Hey, adhd -er, I see you. I know exactly what it's like to feel lost, confused, frustrated, and like no one out there really understands the way that your brain works. That's why I created Focused. Focused is my monthly coaching program where I lead you through a step-by-step -step process of understanding yourself, feeling better, and creating the life that you know you're meant for. You'll study, be coached, grow, and make amazing changes alongside of other educated professional adults with ADHD from all over the world. Visit IHaveADHD.com slash focused to learn more.